Good morning, everyone. Today we continue our look at the household code text, also known in German as the Haustafel text. Last week we spent a bit of time considering the theological and really the Christocentric underpinnings of marriage via Ephesians 5. So we're going to round that out. We've got an eye toward what the scriptures give us as the primary vocation. So we'll review on that as well. And then we'll go into these other two complementary vocations, um, that of parents and children, very briefly, and then slaves and masters, or as we might put it in our terms, uh, employer, employee, manager, managed, whatever you like. Before we get down to business, let's go ahead and open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. And again, we started last week looking at verse 14 of chapter 5. We don't have to go all the way back there. But I do want to hit just a couple of high points. The first being that one of the recurrent themes we're going to see is this idea of submission and or obedience, which in American culture may as well be four-letter words. No one wants to submit to anyone. No one wants to obey anything. Right? But what we see in the scriptures is a great big call to get over it. What we're looking to do is to submit, but in a properly ordered way. That is, to find our place within creation and thus to submit in exactly the way we are called to submit. I mean, for example, you might think, well, I'm a pastor of a congregation. I don't submit to anyone. Yeah, right. I, in the first place, submit to the Word of God. That's what I've pledged to preach week in, week out, not to preach anything contrary to that or to preach anything additional to that. I'm also in submission to our circuit visitor. He's my ecclesiastical supervisor, one level up. I am in submission also to our district president. He's one level up further. And to our synodical president, he's one level up further still. I'm under submission in the local congregation to the governing bodies of our congregation, that they are in there to ensure that I preach the word of God faithfully and don't derivate from that. And they're the ones who call me to account if I fail. And then, of course, like everyone else in this room, I'm a citizen in the left-hand kingdom, and so I find myself submitting to the secular authorities whenever and wherever I can do so without compromising the word of God. So we're all deeply in submission, whether we want to admit it or not. 
But what the Bible lays out for us is a template for authority, a template for proper ordering within various vocations, and then to submit in orderly and proper fashion. What would be a disordered form of submitting? What if my daughter said, Dad, I want you to only use Muppet analogies in your sermons for the next month. Dad, I want you to act out the sermons with sock puppets. Must I be obedient to her? Must I, as St. Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Is that a kind of submission that I should do? No, because very clearly in this case it would be... Did somebody say yes? (laughs) Might be more interesting. Okay, there's the guilty party. All right. I've taken a mental note back there. So, <laughs> so we, want to, we want to have a general attitude of appreciation of authority and submissiveness to it, but we want to make sure that that's a well-ordered submission. There are ways in which parents, of course, should not submit to the whims and will of their children, but rather should have their children submit to them. It's not to say that you can't listen to someone who is sort of down the food chain from you, so to speak. You know, if, if I am planning on yet another night of, uh, we call it Mexican mess at my house. It's definitely a mess, probably not Mexican by any definition. You just take anything you can find in the, you know, meat and beans and whatever salsa's left over and some diced tomatoes, and then you cover the whole thing with cheese and you dip your chips into it. It really ends up delicious by some miracle. It's never made of the same ingredients. But if I'm sitting there saying, okay, well, we're going to have this for the 15th time this week, and our kids are like, hey, can we please go to Chick-fil-A like every other Christian family? It's like, okay, well, maybe so, just tonight. So, yeah, you can listen to people, but that's different than submitting to people. And so that's one of the themes we see, that in the first place, we're all submissive to Christ in our vocation of, as Christians, and we're generally submissive to one another. But what's not thereby eroded is the order and structure, sometimes we call this the economy of God's creation. And if you recall last week, we even reflected on how deeply this goes, that as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those three persons, we confess that they're co-equal in divinity, co-equal in power. The Father is not by his ontology, by his essence, greater than the Son. The Son is equal God, nor are these two greater by ontology or being uh, than the Spirit. The Spirit likewise is equal God. So these three persons of God, while ontologically equal, equal according to their being and nature, then show a hierarchy, an ordering in terms of how it is that they interact with creation. So you see, for example, that it's the Son that is begotten while it's the Father that begets. The Spirit isn't begotten, nor does He beget, but He proceeds. The second person alone becomes man, not the first person, not the third person. We see Christ praying to the Father, but we don't really see that in any reciprocal way. 
So we can see that there's an ordering and a hierarchy. There even is in the language of Jesus, uh, particularly John's gospel is made to explore this theme. But Jesus doesn't preach or teach anything that is of his own, but what the Father gives him, that he preaches and teaches. And then likewise, the Spirit doesn't come preaching anything of his own, but that which the Son has given him to preach and teach. It's the Holy Spirit through the Word that draws us into Christ, and in Christ we see the image of the invisible Father. In the image of Christ we come to know the Father. So you can see how this whole thing works. There's an economy and an ordering. When God sets about creating the world, he puts that same economy and ordering right into the essential unit of creation. Let's see if you remember. The individual or the family? How many vote for individual? Thank goodness. De facto, then, you all got it right. The family. That or else your refusal to answer benefited you in this case. So, yeah, it's the family. So the family is the one flesh unit. And you look at father, mother, you could also call them husband and wife, and child. You say ontologically, in terms of their being and nature, these are three equal people. They're equally human. They're equally valued in God's sight, purchased and won by the blood of Christ. And yet there is an ordering and an economy that God has designed. That reflects the very ordering and economy of the Trinity itself. So the beautiful thing is, as the Son submits to the Father, so then we submit to those vocations that are above us. It's not below our dignity. It's within the dignity of the Godhead itself, himself. So then, again, all of this is meant to impress upon us that this is just the natural flow and course. If it is in God himself, how much more so in the creation that reflects God's nature? All right, so thus we're not afraid here in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, where it talks about submitting to one another um, out of reverence for Christ. That's the general Christian vocation and attitude we have, reckoning others greater than ourselves. But that doesn't destroy the created order. So immediately in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, so on and so forth. And so just by way of review, the wife submits to the husband, not because he's equal to the Lord, but because in submitting to her husband, she is in fact worshiping the Lord. This is her act of worship in submitting to her husband. She's not saying, my husband is worthy of this in and of himself. He may or may not be. But you say, the Lord is always worthy of this. And we see a symmetry there when Paul turns to husbands. So look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, telling us what? That before he did so, she was unsanctified, having cleansed her, which also tells us what? That she was unclean, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Previously, she was not splendorous without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Prior to his love, indeed, while he was loving her, she was yet 
spotted, wrinkly, and had occurrence of other such things. <laughs> so what do we see here? Again, the love of Christ for his church is, like Christ isn't in heaven going, look at my church, look how worthy she is of my love. That's not what's happening. He say, look at her, unclean, befouled in her sins, spotted, wrinkly, blemished. I'm going to go love her into splendor and glory and cleanness. Now, that's exactly the parallel of the husband's love for his wife. Not called to love her because she's worthy, but to love her, period, the end. Again, maybe she's worthy or not worthy of it, but that's not the point. The point is that in the husband's self-sacrificing love for his wife, he is offering his worship to God. He is seeing himself as a type of Christ who loves the unlovely and even the loveless, just as Christ loves his church, so the husband is called to love his wife. Which, that's one of the, one of the interesting things, as the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, there is a sense, and here I'm really talking to you men, it's, you know, in this conversation, it's really helpful to kind of silo off. Women pay attention to what the word is calling you to do. Men pay attention to what the word is calling you to do. And don't look at the other side and judge your spouse and say, hey, here's your job list. And, and I don't see you fulfilling that. That makes you a judge. And you're so busy judging, you haven't put yourself in the place of humility where you're learning your own vocation, right? So what are we going to say then? We're going to say that husbands, in terms of this siloed view, if your wife isn't what you want her to be or what you think she should be or what you think you deserve, guess what? Get busy loving her as Christ loved the church until she becomes so. All right, so that's a brief reflection on last week's class where we really looked at this chief, these chief vocations of husband and wife reflecting on the deeper Christological and the- theological underpinnings. And I think we finished out chapter 5. So then we move on to the two other pairs, parents and children, the special eye toward fathers here, but I think it applies fairly universally, and then also slaves and masters. So before we go into chapter 6, though, let's pause and see how things are uh, setting. I don't see any tomatoes or rocks in hands. That's a good sign, I guess. Any thoughts? Any questions? Fantastic. At least none you want to put on record on the World Wide Web. So all of these things are inimical to the culture in which we live. They're completely contrary to it. And I think that this is kind of an important epistemological step that we can all take in our minds. Epistemology is how you know the truth. And where you see culture and quote-unquote normalcy at odds with what you see in the scriptures, you have a choice to make. Are you going to go with what your flesh and reason perceive to be normalcy? Are you going to go with the masses? Or are you going to humble yourself and put yourself under the authority of the scriptures and say, what they say goes. If it is offensive to me, that's because I need to be offended. If they speak in a way differently than how I think or would like to think, 
I need to repent and have my mind be conformed into the scriptures. So that's the epistemological challenge that we face, is to not let society define for us what these vocational roles are, nor whether submission or obedience are bad or good. We want the Bible precisely because the one who created the world and ordered it, ordered it so is also the one who wrote the Bible and gave us the instruction manual to these various vocations. So he probably knows what he's talking about. All right, on to uh, children and parents. Sound good? All right, chapter 6, verse 1 of Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And again, it doesn't mean, hey, if one of your parents is unbelieving, you cannot obey him. But rather, when you obey your parents, you're doing so in the Lord. How so? Have you ever wondered why the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, comes even before the fifth commandment, you shall not murder? Doesn't that sound like a little bigger deal, you know, murdering? And you can see a kind of hierarchy. Now you can go too far with this, and to tell you the truth, this is also a claim that can be defended, but in a very sophisticated way. But you could kind of see a sort of general hierarchy in the commandments, can't you? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, thou shalt not covet, etc. Make sense? So I think most people would generally see a hierarchy. Why on earth is the fourth commandment stuck before murder? In the fifth commandment, God's protecting life. In the sixth, the sanctity of marriage and the root and origin of the family. In the seventh, personal property. It's, by the way, as an aside, how we know communism is godless and atheistic. And then the eighth commandment, protecting the reputation Ninth and Tenth Commandment, protecting really the human heart, that the heart would not be constantly unsatisfied. So these are precious gifts. What's even more precious still that God sees in parents? At some times in the history of the church, the Fourth Commandment has even been included on the first table of the law, that is, those having to do with God. So that is to say, our vertical relationship with God, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, honor your father and mother. Now, in terms of your, de- your dealings with your neighbor, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, etc. Why do you think it would in some cases be included in the first table that has to do with God? I see a hand in the back. Well, part of the commandment is that so it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. But parents set up the order that God gives them to teach to children, and that's how the order is sustained, I would think. That's a great answer. It's a fine answer. Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit deeper answer still, but I would certainly accept the answer that in parents and children is the foundation of creation. Right. And creation ongoing. Why do you think specifically that commandment's drug over into the table that has to do with God? Well, I, I guess you could say that the parent is, is 
the mask of God for the child. Right? Bingo. I mean, That's I mean a, yeah. He's he's or 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 she the the mother too mm-hmm. has to be the one that teaches that child to follow God, and it is God teaching through them. Exactly right. It, it's also interesting. There's that one passage later on. People get all worked up about it, where it it talks about a child who's willful and disobedient getting stoned to death. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder how many times did that actually happen? Yeah, right. That, that they is it really was the command given because to remind parents, you know, if you don't do your job, your child is going down a road of destruction. Mm-hmm. And and all those other commandments that come later, he's going to do them. Yeah. If you don't do your job and keep them in order. Yeah. Plus, that's a heck of a verse to crochet onto your pillows that your kids lay on when they're watching their TV, right? The bit yeah. about putting the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. child to yeah, death yeah. who's disobedient. Yeah, it yeah, kind of works yeah. both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Your yeah. answer is exactly, I, I appreciate both your answers there, both uh, things you said. Um, but your answer is especially apropos that parents are the masks of God. And that's indeed the exact language that Luther liked to use, the larvae dei, the masks of God. It sounds like an insect in Latin, but it's not. Um, so, so masks of God. So as, as children, when you're, when you're trying to figure out who on earth God is and what on earth God is like, there's no one who intuitively is going to teach you that, for better or worse in a fallen world, than your parents. So that's why it's sometimes in the history of the church that's been slid over under uh, the first table of the law. But likewise, then, it is also why the fourth commandment is more important than the fifth commandment. Because how, this is a little bit of brutal law, I'm sorry, how you treat your parents is how you treat God. How you think of your parents is ultimately how you think of God. I quote St. John if necessary. If you have not loved your, I'm going to insert, mother and father whom you have seen, how can you love God your father whom you have not seen? Okay. So uh, this, is, this is very, very important. Now, obviously, we live in a fallen world. We live in a terrible place. We live in a place where fathers leave their children we, uh, in the Roman world. Um, the pater familias had, a, had complete control over his family to the point that if he wanted to expose his children, have his children aborted, have his wife killed, have his slaves ki- whipped and killed, he could do whatever he wanted. And so there are, we live in a world where there are complete and extreme abuses of the fatherly role. And of course, we live in a world where there are complete and extreme abuses of the motherly role as well. And we live in a world where uh, you're fortunate if you're given up for adoption and given a shot at life because uh, there are nearly 60 million children who have been aborted here in America alone. So you think of the Holocaust and a, a fairly conservative estimate, that's 6 million. Let this sink in. 60 million. Ten times the Holocaust going on right here in the United States of America. So... Uh, yeah, we live, in a, we live in an age where, look, I, you may have been raised and you say, I don't resonate with this idea at all that the fourth commandment reflects God. Okay, but just because you have the experience you had, the word of God is not thereby negated. Okay? Your experience has to be understood in antithesis to God's creation, God's design, God's good purposes. 
I see a hand coming up in the back. Can you hear me? About that you referenced almost a supernatural effect that would happen for husbands to love their wives even if they're not feeling that they're deserving of love. If we do the same thing with our parents, will a similar supernatural healing take place in yeah. that relationship too? Okay, so to yeah. Love them anyway, even if it's not the greatest situation. That's a great question. So what and it allows me to clarify something here. There is nothing here in Ephesians or anywhere else in the scriptures that says, wife, if you love your terrible, wretched husband in just the way that God ordains, he's suddenly going to become wonderful. Nor is there any promise that says, husbands, if you love your wretched, godless wife, she's suddenly going to become lovely. So the one thing we have to shake from our minds here is this isn't a how-to. This isn't a magical recipe. So then the same would obviously be true for parents. If you are obeying your parents... Um, and you're the most respectful child, whether from, from youth all the way up into adulthood or wherever the case may be, there's no guarantee that you're going to miraculously change them or reshape or reform them, okay? So we want to stop short of that because that's frankly God's business. Now, can these things occur? Of course. Would there be any better possible way to conceive of these things happening? No, not really. That would be the number one thing. But at the same time, there's no guarantee. And that's important because we can't change vocation into a simple teaching of pragmatism. Hey, now you've discovered the magic recipe to making all of life work. And if you just do it right, piece by piece, all of your suffering is going to go away. All your vocations are going to magically transform. That's not what the scripture is laying out. In fact, what the scripture is laying out is something much more comforting. That whether it has effect or not, it is pleasing in God's sight. Whether it has effect or not, whether it has any pragmatic value at all, it has eternal value. Because God says even the gift of a cup of cold water to a little child does not escape his sight. He is recording it, keeping track of it. It is precious in his sight. I mean, can you imagine how loving God is? That he gives his only begotten son? And how loving God is that he provides daily food even for the wicked for the whole world and how loving God is that he looks down on us in our lowliness and in our insignificance and in our assumed meaninglessness and his tender fatherly heart records even the tiniest little things we do that are pleasing to him and he delights in these things he loves them he loves us he loves it all I mean this is a glimpse into the heart of God the tender, humble, meek, and compassionate heart of the one who created all things. And so that's the even greater encouragement in vocation, is even if this remains, you know, this particular relationship, either, you know, maybe with your spouse, or maybe with your children or parents, or maybe with your employer or employee, even if that gets soured and, and is unfixable, the doctrine of vocation remains just as precious and untainted. Now, again, it seems like maybe a good time to add in here, we're not pursuing these vocational gifts that God gives us as if perfection is achievable. We're not pursuing them because to do so just turns it into a kind of merciless and accusing law. 
So when the small catechism addresses the question of when I go to the pastor for individual confession, what sins should I confess? And the answer of the small catechism is this. Consider your place, your station in life. And then it goes through the vocations. Consider your place in life. Goes through the vocations. says, according to the Ten Commandments. In other words, there is no surer or easier way to reveal to us our sins and shortcomings than to consider your role as husband or wife and how you've loved your spouse, as parent or child, and how faithfully you've done your duty, or as employer and employee, and whether you've done everything that God would be, you know, that God would have you do that would be asked of you. If you've done those things, Luther says, that's a recipe for having something to confess. (laughs) In other words, we're not pursuing these things as if, hey, perfection is attainable and easily attained. We're pursuing these things as, these please God, And we're working against our own flesh, our own sinful flesh, and the sinful flesh of those people holding the vocations to which we owe a duty. And we're in a sinful world. And the God of this world, Satan, has cast his great shadow over it. And the brilliance of the Lord is, it doesn't matter. I've got you here anyway. I've made you children of the light. You're shining in the midst of the darkness. This is having a cosmic impact that you can't yet see, even in the angelic world, and they can see it. And the goal isn't, oh, you didn't shine perfectly, you didn't shine bright enough. The goal is, shine and shine more. What else are you going to do in this life? I mean, seriously, what do you think it's for? That's kind of why the idea of, like, you know, is from this angle, too. I'm back on my old soapbox and saw, but, like, where you can see this idea of, like, a bucket list is just being, like, kind of stupid and silly. It's like, oh, i got to go all these places. Is that why you're here? I mean, I don't care if you go all those places. I don't care if you have a bucket list. I'm not going to, you know, put you under church discipline. Don't worry. But, the, uh, but at the same time, I mean, that's not what life is all about. Life isn't about squeezing as much joy as you possibly can out of this world while doing as little work as possible. If, that, if, that's, your, if that's your life, that's miserable, slavish lifestyle. Slave to your passions, slave to the work that enables your passions, just slave to all of it. But to live free is to say... I know I'm not going to shine perfectly, but can I shine in this way too? And then you make it small. Not grandiose, not big. Today, right now, this afternoon, this evening, when I go to bed, when I wake up the next day, just one step at a time, how can I conduct myself in a way that's pleasing to my Heavenly Father, who is love? Does that make sense? And I hope that helps. Because otherwise, this can become real overbearing law. And that's not the point. I mean, if that were the point, then St. Paul would be writing like every other line, don't worry, Jesus forgives you. But that's not the point. The point is to lay an impossible burden upon us. The, The point is to shine the light of the Holy Spirit upon our lives so that we can see that this has meaning and purpose and value. Good. Okay, there's a hand. Hang on one second. Take your time, please. What about uh, Matthew 10, um, verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father, and and so on. Mm, Yeah, yeah. What do we do with that apparent contradiction? Yeah, so we're in a different frame there, aren't we? Here we're in the frame that would be more like justification, 
and more like the question of salvation. And if your father says to you, you let's, say, let's say you're a 10-year-old kid at home, just give a concrete example here, and your dad says, I forbid you from believing in Jesus Christ. Are you supposed to go with the fourth commandment that says, honor your father, or are you supposed to go with Jesus? Here Jesus is simply clarifying and saying, no, your calling is to me. Your calling is to God your father above all other callings. And that's an axiomatic principle. We must obey God and not man. So if anyone, even our own earthly father, our pastor, our state representative or the president of the country, if any man tells us to do something that is contrary to God's word or to do something that God, you know, wants us to, forces us to do something that God's word has forbidden, etc., then we must obey God and not man. So that's really all that kind of verse is articulating is our first commitment is always and ever to God. Anywhere where man stands opposed, then man has to fall away, even if that man is father, mother, uh, husband, wife, son, brother, whatever. Um, yeah, that's the number one calling that every human being has. And by the way, this is why Jesus Jesus doesn't soft-pedal this point. Like, if the reason you're not going to believe in Jesus is because you're going to go to heaven and the people you loved are going to go to hell, then who's your God? If you would rather go with them to hell than with God to heaven, then who's your God? It's very clear that it's the people you love. That's why Jesus is complete, from, from a certain vantage point, I think from like a 21st century American vantage point, sounds like heartless, but he's not at all. It's just the fundamental question of idolatry. If you love people more than me, you're not worthy of me. And that's why you find no soft peddling and no like equivocation and no wringing of... of messianic hands he just says it flat out like if you, if you love people more than me they're your god you have to love me first and let the chips fall where they fall heaven and earth may pass away my word will never pass away i mean luther's so great on this in his lectures in galatians because he's like let the church burn down let every pope every prelate every pastor go straight to hell let the entire world be burned in the fires of hell we're not going to give up on one word of god because giving up on one word of god is to call him a liar that is precisely the radical attitude that christ everywhere calls us to not to compromise in the least bit on his word why we're not authorized to do so and to tweak his word is to call God a liar and to say that man is more valuable than God. Perish the thought. So in faith, in matters of doctrine, absolute uncompromising faithfulness. But now Luther says, and this is so beautiful, paradoxically in matters of love, allow ourselves to be trampled, humiliated, insulted, despised, Run the top over as who cares as long as we keep loving, keep pursuing our neighbor in love with the truth, keep serving them no matter what they do. So you can see that, that faith refuses to give anything and love insists upon giving everything. 
So wherever we can, we give everything for the sake of neighbor and lay down anything for the sake of neighbor, but not on matters of faith. We're not authorized to do so. Okay, sorry for the long discursus there. Yeah. Everybody okay? All right, so let's go a little further then. So children, obey your parents in the Lord. And again, in the Lord there doesn't mean because they're Christian, but because... You're seeing them in the office of God as masks of God. When you love them, whether they're worthy or not, you're loving, you're showing your love for the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, now quoting the fourth commandment. This is the first commandment with a promise. Here's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So, Paul reciting this promise seems to indicate that it remains operative even for Christians. That there, is, that there are temporal blessings associated with honoring father and mother, and insofar as you're able, obeying them. Now, I think what's difficult for us, too, is we, we're living long enough these days where you, you see life go full circle. There's these weird kind of cyclical things, aren't there? Um, so there's, it's like, it, it, this is an oversimplification, but there's one phase of your life where your parents are taking care of you. There is another phase where you're kind of taking care of each other. And then the final phase is you're taking care of them. And here's, here's one phase where we want to think in a nuanced way toward the end of life. There is a very real sense in which as their caretakers, we are uh, obeying and honoring our parents by doing what's right for them, even if that's absolutely not what they want. The only exception I can think of this is when I've outlived my usefulness. I'm going to tell my parents or my kids to put me on a plane, send me out to the mountains of Colorado in my wheelchair with a shotgun in hand. I'm going to go out guns a-blazing. And whatever wants to come and get me can come and get me. That's fine. Or, uh, you know, exposure to air, whatever else. Um, Then they have to obey me in that. No, of course not. This is, I mean, these are the nutty ideas we have. I'm going to live forever on my own, independent. But you can't. But I want to. I'm mad at you that you've put me into a facility. I'm putting you into the facility because I love you and care for you, right? So it takes on a nuanced shape and form. That's all I'm trying to say in our society because we live so long. All right, then what we've just done the vocation of children. Let's do the vocation of fathers. And again, fathers are in view here because they're the head of the household, so this responsibility falls on their shoulders. But I think in a general sense, there's no problem with viewing this as parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this may seem simplistic, but you really have to let this soak in deeply. How is it that, because what's being, what's underneath this is as the Heavenly Father has treated you, you treat your children. As the Heavenly Father has disciplined you and instructed you, you think of how patient he has been, how painstaking, how merciful, at times necessarily harsh, necessarily devastating, but always there to pick up the pieces and heal 
and bind your wounds. So this is the template for fathers with their children, earthly fathers with their children. Don't provoke your children to anger, like bitterness against you, because why? It's going to be on a very, very deep level, bitterness against God. Because whether you know it or not, whether everybody's recognizing it or not, at the deepest level, almost at a subconscious level, that's what's going on. You simply cannot escape this reality that your parents reflect God to you, particularly your father, because God is father. And you reflect that to your children. So don't provoke them to anger. That's not what the Lord has done to you. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, and this is why the catechism belongs in the home with fathers. Because it is your job, not your pastor's job, not the church's job, to raise your child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now you do this in part by bringing them into the church and by bringing them to catechism class and Bible study and everything else, but the ultimate onus for all of this falls on the head of the household. So from this we can see that fathers are the spiritual heads of their household and they're responsible for what goes on. So there is, if, if you don't have this in place, dads out there, um, in whatever way, shape, or form you can, Start daily devotions with your family. Start morning devotions. Set the day off right. Lead your family in prayer whenever you can, whenever you're around. Insist upon being the one to lead them in prayer because you're the spiritual head of the household and they need to see that. And at the end of the, at the, end of the day, no matter what, even if they've already gone to bed and they're in their different rooms, go in and pray with each one individually if you can't already call them all together. But even better to call the whole family together. Well, part of that... Uh, the, the part of the why is that that's good for you. That's good for you. But the other part of the why is it's good for your family because they're starting to see you rightly. So you yourself are being conformed into the image of the Heavenly Father and they're seeing you being conformed into the image of the Heavenly Father and that is profoundly helpful when things arise that may not be easy. So if you can't, if you could, I, I just cannot recommend this enough. If you're not doing something, anything, and if you need specifics, come talk to me. Um, now's the time to start. And it can be very simple, especially to begin with. All right, um, that gives us the, the second set, the second pair of vocations. We've seen husbands and wives. Now we've seen children and parents. Um, are there any questions here in regard to children and parents, children, and fathers? Or anything you would add? Any advice, wisdom, counsel that you have to add? I, I see a hand up here. Um, just that something I always hear um, is it's never too late either. It might yes. be harder. Yes. But it's never too late. Absolutely. You know, um, to be able to show God's attachment to us and then us show that to our children is just, you can do discipline with attachment and it works beautifully. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's exactly right. And um, yeah, by way of encouragement too. I mean, we live in a time and a place where it's like, well, you know, you can think to yourself, well, my parents never did that for me. So why would I start doing that for my kids? Because it's good and right. (laughs) Your parents want you to be better than they are, so be better than they are. You want your kids to be better than you are, so let's get that going. Um, the, the statistical reality 
is that if you go to church, uh, the statistical realities bear out a disintegration of the faith generationally. The faith doesn't get stronger. It tends to disintegrate here in America in these present times. So that if you go twice a month to church, your kids are going to go once a month if they go at all. If you go once a month, they're going to be Christian in Easter. If you don't have any devotions, they're definitely not going to have any devotions. If you have a devotion in your family life, you give them a chance to have devotions in their family lives. So how do you buck that trend? How do you reverse it? You look not at what was given to you, what you grew up with, what was comfortable for you, and I guess I turned out okay, so that must be okay. No, you buck the trend by saying, whatever my parents gave me, I want to up the ante so that if my children in this culture fall, they fall back to where I was. But every generation needs its call to do more than the previous generation, not less. Because we're fighting that downhill gravity of unbelief and living in the devil's kingdom. So there's an encouragement, too, to think not like, well, this is what I was given, or I wasn't given that. Um, Think of, yeah, but what's the ideal that I could do? And again, start small. I mean, that's the, don't, all of this requires that we just be who we are, which is humble people of God, baptized into his name, um, beggars receiving his forgiveness daily, uh, and then doing the best we can and starting small, having that humility in our devotional life that we not try to do too much and thus it all falls apart. Last question, then we'll get out of here for the week. The debate that's raging Mm-hmm. In America today, uh, I brought forward to some young teenage girls, um, you know, who are scoffing at my recommending that they learn God's commandments. Mm, that's brave of you. Good for you. You know what? I'm 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 so old right now. <laughs> I don't. I really I have a, a laissez-faire about this. Yeah. I don't care. And and she's just scoffing. And I thought, I think I'm going to have Wendy type up or get a printout of the uh-huh. Ten Commandments and, and, and to review for any of them that I would see. Sure, sure. Um, I, can't, I can't reconcile the two debates that are heavy on my heart. The taking of a baby's life, that's not the woman's life she's taking, it's the baby. It's the human baby's life, mm-hmm. but the other is, uh, and I'm not clear what's going on with this, on the, um, the protection that we are allowed in the Constitution, Second uh, Amendment, that we can protect ourselves and our families. Uh, there's, there's a lack of reconciliation in those. Yeah, uh, I'll talk with you later about that. But it's just I'll give you my real quick theory, Go. and that's it. So when you look at Revelation, there's two beasts. There's one that comes from the earth and one that comes from the sea. And these fight on the side of the great dragon that's Satan. The beast from the earth is very obviously false and tyrannical religions. Think of the sum total of false and tyrannical religions outside of Christendom and inside of Christendom. Now you're talking about the beast of the earth. The beast of the sea are the politically tyrannous and wicked governments all around the world. One of the things that are, this is the way I see these two things tying in together. 
One of the things that our government is desiring to do is to so destroy masculinity that the husband has no more headship. The husband is there to pay for his family and to pay taxes. The second the wife doesn't like anything she's doing, she files for divorce. By the way, here in Orange County, of divorced couples, over 70% are filed by the women. Think on that. Because who's there to protect them? Government. Government wants to function as the father that frees you to kill the children. Government wants to function as the husband who will be there when you feel like it. And government wants to be there to protect you. How do you think that's going to work out? Read a history book. Read anything from the last century. It never works. So these are all of a piece that government is trying to take the place as the head of the household that belongs to the husband. And if government succeeds in this, all you'll have is wife and what children she desires to keep alive under the husband of government, and you'll have the, ma- the male class just simply funding it all. The, in other words, called the what? Slaves. So you'll have the males, by and large, as slaves. You'll have the women and children in the home, and the head of the home will be the state who tells you exactly what's good for you and will protect you or not at its whim. So, okay. Oh, that struck a nerve. Real quick. Yeah, please. I know I'm not a scientist, but my daughter is. And we were talking about, you know, women screaming, my body, my choice. Yeah. And she says, actually, it isn't their body. Because the child has a different DNA than the mother. Great point. And Great point. ever since she said that, I've been sharing that. Yeah. Because it's absolutely true. Yeah. The and DNA what about, of the child is totally different than the mother. And it's equally the husband's body. What's yeah. his say in it? So, you know, not my body, my choice. Yeah. Thank my you body for that. and this person I'm. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, the husband, in terms of abortion, has how much say? bolstering the point I just made. Uh, going back to the, the business about the, the government wanting to take the place of fathers, yeah. I think it's interesting if the father is the mask of God because I think really what the government wants to take the place of is God. Mm-hmm. Right, at, at, right at the bottom. They're, they're sort of, it's like a baby step Yeah, to take the place of the father. Then the next thing is take the place of God. Thus you can see the service of the beast to the dragon, right? right? And setting up this whole false religion and and economy you're ordering. All right, that's it, my friends. The Lord be with you. See you next week.